Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think that gaslighting in the doctor's office is a very common experience. Everyone has a story about being made to feel like you're crazy when you try to bring up an issue or try to explain what's wrong with you. And welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today, we're on the hunt for a diagnosis. Which explains why you wore a stethoscope to the studio, Caroline. You, you, you know I love a good podcast prop. Well, Kristen, it's all for you. But this is serious. We've noticed a lot of symptoms of doctors not taking women's medical concerns seriously, especially when we're in pain or chronic discomfort. Yeah. And speaking of which, to kick off this episode, we're going to take a quick ride on the pain train. First up, IUD insertion. A 2017 study in the journal Contraception found that on average— patients, they rated the pain of getting one at 65 out of 100. Doctors, meanwhile, rated it as 35 Mm. out of 100 on average, which that's a bit of a difference. Yeah, I mean, especially considering mine was like 1,000 out of 100, but that's okay. I mean, IUDs only need replacing every five or six years. But every day, roughly 25% of Americans experience chronic pain, and most of those are women. Yet there's this growing body of research that's found that women's pain is likelier to be dismissed by doctors as emotional, psychogenic, or just plain not real. And despite how common conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, and uterine fibroids are— Many physicians still don't recognize the symptoms, which leaves a lot of us suffering in silence. So in this episode, we're talking to a feminist Sherlock Holmes of healthcare who's constantly looking for clues as to why so many women and gender nonconforming folks leave the doctor feeling worse than when we came in. But it's not all depressing news, y'all. We're also going to look back to fairly recent history for some inspiration about how women have reclaimed their body space from medical patriarchy. And we're going to meet a gynecologist who's got some great advice for getting heard at your next appointment. All to find out, are women getting gaslit at the doctor's office? And if so, is there a prescription to fix it? 
Caroline, we aren't the only ones asking about all this. Uh, unladylike listeners like Morgan want to know what the F is up to. So she's a ballet teacher who suffered from chronic back and period pain for years. And we heard from her a while back when she emailed us about how she constantly has to convince doctors that something is wrong. She writes, I used to explain that I would bleed through my point shoes and would think, oh, that sucks. I need to get new shoes and continue dancing just in order to get doctors to understand that if I was saying something, it was real. That is real. And not being taken seriously has real impacts, too. Like take heart attacks, for instance. For years, medicine didn't really acknowledge that the symptoms of a heart attack were different for men and women. And we know this in part thanks to Dr. Bernadine Healy. She was the first woman to head up the National Institutes of Health in 1991. And Dr. Healy noticed this pattern of doctors not treating women's cardiac complaints as seriously as men's. Yeah, she called it Yentl syndrome. And it's based on this story where a woman named Yentl... Portrayed on film by none other than Barbara Streisand. She was born into a time when the world of study belonged only to men. So Babs, a.k.a. Yentl, pretends to be a man so that she can study the Talmud. And if you're wondering, what does all this have to do with women's chest pain? Well, Yentl syndrome is basically saying that women have to be men if they want their medical complaints taken as seriously as men's. Although, of course, Caroline, this is not exclusive to cardiovascular health. Go oh, no, not by a long shot. Microbiologist Sasha Adi coined a similar term out of frustration with polycystic ovary syndrome going undiagnosed so often, and she calls it healthcare gaslighting. And our first guest has heard plenty of stories as well about this exact phenomenon. I think to me that shows just how continual a process this is, like learning about our bodies both on a wider societal level, but also like individually, just how like it's such a learning process. And you think that you know your body. And then you keep learning more and more things. This is just making me want uh, to, to see like a, a puberty book called The Secrets of Your Cervical Fluid. <laughs> <laughs> this is Allison Behringer, the host of a new podcast called Bodies. Every episode is kind of like a health-themed game of Clue. Except who killed Miss Scarlet with a rope is more like a tampon <laughs> euphemism. Maybe, maybe it got lost somewhere. <laughs> What's going on? Sort of. So we were chatting with Allison about cervical fluid because she was telling us about this pivotal realization she had not long after college about how little she actually knew about her body. Yeah, it was this moment of like, you think you know, but you have no idea. The real world. Allison's body. See, this all started in Bangalore, India. Allison was working there for a nonprofit organization teaching girls about puberty and health. We had these like questions that the, the girls could write um, questions on pieces of paper and then give it to us. And one question we got again and again is like, what is white blood? And we're like, white blood? Like, what is that? We're like, oh, they're talking about discharge. And that was freaking them out. And, and, you know, so we came back. We're like, that's totally normal. It's just discharge. And they seemed, like, relieved by that answer that it was normal. I think that so many of the questions that we got are, I mean, when you boil it down, the question is, am I normal? Which is a question that gets asked again and again and again. When she came home, Allison started thinking about how the knowledge gaps she saw in the girls in India were really just different versions of the ones she and her own friends had. I think we have a tendency to 
in the West sometimes look at other cultures and be like, oh, they're so repressed. They don't talk about these things. But then when you actually turn the mirror and look at your own country, it's like, we don't have good messages about this either. Like, we don't have it figured out either. She's right. But that realization alone didn't turn Allison into a DIY body detective. Because not long after, a medical mystery materialized that she had no choice but to try and solve. Yeah, so when Allison was 25, she was living in New York City. And she starts dating this guy, and things are going really great. You know, they'd go on bike rides together, explore the city, travel. I was completely in love with this person. And probably like four or five months into our relationship, all of a sudden— sex started to become painful. And um, I never had an issue with this person or in the past with painful sex. And so at first I, re- I was like, oh, you know, we we didn't see each other for a while. Or like, you know, I think that most women have had experiences with like, maybe not painful, but like uncomfortable sex that you're like, oh, I just, we the, it wasn't right or this or that, which is a problem in and of itself. But <laughs> I kind of brushed it off. But then it just kept happening, it kept happening, um, and it was getting worse and worse to the point that, like, half the time we'd have to stop. In the first episode of Bodies, Allison describes her experience with painful sex and how it felt. Foreplay. Enough to get him hard, but I'm barely wet. He enters me slowly. At this point, he at least knows to do this. And I feel a burn. I close my eyes try to relax, try to enjoy it. Okay, it's not so bad now. But then burning again now, pain deeper in my insides. He's really into it. It's hurting, I say in a small voice. Another thrust. It's hurting, I say again. He pulls out. I help him finish. He goes to sleep. I stare at the ceiling. You know, I started googling it and like no information was really coming up and I didn't really tell anyone about it either I mean my my boyfriend at the time knew but I I'm not sure like I ever communicated the extent of it what kinds of things were you were you googling um painful sex basically Mm -hmm. and at the time I didn't actually have the language to even explain like what part was hurting so it was a lot of just like painful sex and I came across this thing called vulvodynia, which is like pain in the vaginal area. But it was like, we don't know the cause of this. Um, Try relaxation. I mean, I think any woman who has had painful sex has heard like, try a bubble bath and wine. And it's like, no, (laughs) that's not that's not what it is. I feel like just relax is like the world's prescription for all of women's complaints. Yes, (laughs) yes, 100 percent. Yeah, and I think that I it was also this thing of, like, you know, do I have an STD? Do I have cancer? Like, is it is it something more serious? But there's also, like, a fear around going further and, and, and making a doctor's appointment. Like, that felt really scary because it felt like by doing that, it would almost be—it it would be a problem. It, it, could, it wasn't something that I could just ignore and that was going to get better. Caroline, I wonder if it's time to accept that just, like, playing Google Doctor on ourselves— is part of the healthcare process now. I mean, it's like Googling someone before a first date. Like, why wouldn't you? Right? I mean, you practically have to. 
And there was a stat from the Pew Research Center that found that women between like 20 and 35 are actually the likeliest to look for a diagnosis online. Plus, get a load of these Google receipts. Painful sex is searched six times more often than erectile dysfunction. Well, for Allison, six months of Googling didn't really get her any closer to an answer. So she made an appointment with her gynecologist. I went in and and, um, was telling her about what was going on. And she was like, oh, well, a lot of women have pain with sex. Like, you can try using more lube. You know, it'll it'll probably go away. Like, you're fine. And I remember I, I started crying in the doctor's office. And she kind of looked at me with this face that to me said, like, why are you, why are you crying? You know? And I think she even said, like, well, why, why are you upset? And I was like, because this is affecting my whole life. Like, this is affecting my relationship. I feel, like, horrible about myself. I feel like I'm broken. Like, this is kind of permeating into every part of my being. And I'm not, and I can't even really talk about it. So I am curious yeah. how the your gynecologist responded after you said that. I mean, did did she at least offer an apology? She offered me tissues. Oh. Um, that's all I remember. <laughs> and so I left, like, you know, without an answer. So one thing that I'm curious yeah. about, too, like— I'm a woman who also goes to the gynecologist, and it kind of blows my mind that your gynecologist was like, I mean, it's normal. It, it'll go away. Get more lube. Yeah. Like, this is, the, this is the person of all people who's supposed to be like, oh, there are many different things that can happen with your vaginal area. Right. Well, I think that's exactly the problem. You know, often when you go to the gynecologist, they ask you, are you having sex? Yes or no? What kind of protection are you using? Yes or no? Have you ever had a gynecologist ask you, how is sex for you? Do you orgasm? Do you have any pain? Are you finding pleasure through sex? Kristen, let me tell you, as amazing as a lot of my doctors are, I have never had a doctor ask me those questions. Yeah, I mean, mine just asked me what I'm binging on Netflix. But, Caroline, I, I do know that feeling Allison's talking about, both at the gynecologist and other specialists I've seen, where something doesn't feel right to me, but they can't find anything wrong with me. And since they're the experts, like, who am I to argue? And it's scary, right? Especially when it's something that seems to come out of nowhere. I had been very healthy in my life up until then. And so that was really the first time where I was being faced with this thing. Like, my body was doing something that I didn't want it to do, and I couldn't figure it out. Like, I played sports, and, you know, I'd I'd get an injury, but I would stretch it out and, like, knew what I needed to do. And you just feel like your body's in your control. And that's how I felt. Like, I could control my body. And I think that this was a moment where I was like, wow, this is something that's completely out of my control. So ultimately, what did help you solve your own mystery? So it was actually another woman who told me her story. I don't. I think it would have taken me a lot longer to find this answer on my own. Um, it was a friend, and, you know, she was generous enough to share this story of her own. And, you know, she didn't know what was going on with me. I hadn't told her. And she just kind of, we were talking about birth control, and she told me what had been going on with her and why she was having painful sex. I was like, oh my gosh, like that's happening to me. I think it might be the same thing. 
Allison's friend had struggled with painful sex for almost seven years. And like Allison, she'd also been taking the pill for birth control. So after seeing unhelpful doctor after doctor, the friend found one who was like, oh, yeah, painful sex? It's probably the pill. Lo and behold, the friend switched birth control methods and the pain gradually went away. Allison was intrigued, but also skeptical. I mean, how could it be the pill? Everyone takes the pill. Oh, it's just super innocuous. Like, it's the birth control pill. There's, It's not really medicine. So what was really interesting was that, you know, like I said, I had been Googling painful sex and nothing was coming up. But then I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe it's the birth control pill. And then I went home and I typed in painful sex, comma, hormonal birth control pill. And up comes all these results, all these stories, videos, testimonials, people talking about it on forums. And so I think that's just such a great example of like, you know, you can search and search and search and search, but it's like you need the answer to be able to get to the answer almost. I don't know another way to say it, but it was like Mm -hmm. that information was obscured from me before I like figured out the key in. Allison wanted that key. She wanted a definitive diagnosis and treatment. So she called up her friend and got the name of her specialist. And that's how Allison met Dr. Goldstein. What did that feel like to sit down with someone who listened and got it? And how did that change sort of how you approached going to the doctor and looking at your body? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was a pretty incredible experience. He asked me so many questions. Um, And that was really incredible to be on the receiving end of so many questions from a doctor. Allison actually recorded her visit to Dr. Goldstein. Here's a clip from Bodies of her appointment with him that shows all the questions he has to help narrow in on the source of her pain. Okay, and you started having periods at what age? And you had never had any pain with with tampon insertion. When was the first time you tried to have intercourse? Do you have any back pain, leg pain, or hip pain? Any history of anxiety or depression? Do you have any history of any trauma? What did you do for contraception starting at the age of 18? Um, So when did you start noticing discomfort with sex? After a thorough and compassionate conversation, Dr. Goldstein confirmed Allison's hunch. He suspected the hormonal birth control pill was causing the problems. Also, the pain she was feeling with penetration was treatable. She could get better. When I found out that it was the birth control pill causing painful sex, um, I think I was like, one, relieved, two, a little bit nervous about the road ahead towards recovery. And then I think kind of like the third emotion that was a little bit slower to build up was just kind of anger. Like, why didn't I know about this? Why didn't I know? Allison puts that anger to work in the first episode of Bodies. She goes full throttle to figure out how birth control could cause a symptom like hers. But we aren't going to tell you about that here. You're going to have to listen to Bodies. We can tell you that once she got a diagnosis, Allison did get better like Dr. Goldstein promised. She went off the pill and started a treatment called pelvic floor physical therapy. About eight months later, the discomfort was gone. Allison had solved her first body mystery. But why stop at one? Up next, we'll hear how women's DIY healthcare history inspired Allison to help more women crack their cases.
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We're back with Allison Berenger, host and creator of the new podcast from KCRW, Bodies. Allison's experience with painful intercourse had revealed the side of women's health care where pain is expected and unexplained, where it's normal for body mysteries to remain unsolved. Allison was angry about this world, and she decided to do something about it. So I started talking about it a little bit with my friends and then started talking about it more. And what I realized was that any time I told this story, women w- would respond and tell me their own birth control story or their own painful sex story or their own story about being dismissed in the doctor's office. And, you know, then I started talking about it with strangers, you know. And then, like, the more that I talked about it, the more I realized, like, oh, my gosh, like, this isn't, like, a one-off random story. Like, this is a bigger experience that a lot of people have been through. In its first season, Bodies tells the stories of six people grappling with their own medical mysteries. To find those six stories, Allison said she talked to probably 60 people. And one of the things she heard over and over and over again is that same question she heard from the girls in India. Am I normal? In the second episode, it's a story about a woman with horribly debilitating periods. Um, But a lot of the women around her are having really awful periods, so she thinks that's normal. Um, And so I think there's this dangerous thing to conflate normal with healthy or, like, widespread experience with normal with healthy. Like, they're not the same thing. And just because a lot of people are suffering and a lot of people are in pain doesn't mean that it's okay. Something Allison has found from talking to so many people about their body mysteries is that, fortunately, Google isn't our only resource. My hope for bodies is that these stories inspire conversations, which inspire conversations with doctors, inspire resource sharing. And I think that I believe tremendously in the power of storytelling and the power of just sharing your own personal story. And it's been pretty incredible since the publishing of Bodies to see the ways in which those connections are being made. Allison isn't the only woman who believes in the power of sharing your health story to help other women. In fact, one of her inspirations in naming her podcast is a very special book that, you know, kind of lit a match for women's health. Yes, it did. It's a book called Our Bodies, Ourselves. And we got to chat about it for a second, Caroline, because Our Bodies, Ourselves really did ignite a whole women's health movement in the 1970s and 80s. And it started a lot like that conversation that Allison had with her friend who'd also had trouble with painful sex. Only, you know, instead of Brooklyn in 2015, it was at a feminist conference in Boston in 1969. And that was where one discussion group called Women and Their Bodies got together. And they kept on getting together and talking after the conference was over. And all that talking turned into articles and pamphlets that the Boston Women's Health Collective turned into Our Bodies, Ourselves in 1970. Here's one of the founding members, Nancy Hawley. Women were coming out of the woodwork. I mean, 
these sessions that may have started with 30 people, the next month might have been 100, and the following month might have been 200. And I think for women now, there are lots and lots of books out there in addition to Our Bodies, Ourselves, written by women about women's sexual experiences. But to remember this time in history is that there were no books written by women about women's own sexual experiences. A quarter million copies were sold through word of mouth alone in the first few years. And one of the big reasons why it was so successful was because, like Allison, they were angry that it contained so much information that they hadn't already been taught. It was galvanizing for women to get their bodies, aches, and pains taken seriously for the first time. And not just in a book. Like, dozens of feminist health centers sprang up around the country. The movement also took on sterilization abuse, the overuse of chemotherapy, and unnecessary mastectomies to treat breast cancer. And this wasn't a movement made up solely of college-educated middle-class white women. There were groups that formed around communities of color. There were communities for lesbians, fat women, women with particular types of autoimmune disorders, you name it. Really, the biggest challenge was holding that coalition together for the long term without a lot of resources. So by the end of the 80s, the women's health movement was really struggling to compete with big health care. Because by that time, mainstream hospital systems were essentially co-opting the feminist healthcare clinic models and starting their own women's clinics that put a lot of those feminist clinics out of business. And while that might not sound like a bad thing, it's worth considering how much of those women's clinics are just really branding in order to get more of our women's dollars rather than addressing the kinds of systemic issues that feminist health centers were really out to address and provide services for us. And today, we're really seeing that pendulum swing back towards sisters doing health for themselves. I mean, you've got women like Lena Dunham, who are super out and open about the pain of endometriosis. You have women like Serena Williams and other Black mothers having to advocate for their own health and safety in childbirth. And bodies feels like a part of this upswell. You know, I think that every bodies episode can be boiled down to two questions. One, what is wrong with me? The person then figures out what is wrong with me. Two, um, why didn't I know? And I think the answer to the question, why didn't I know? Why wasn't I told? When you really dig back all the layers has to do with corporate interests, big pharma, all of that, and patriarchal medicine. Also racism, also, you know, gender, sexism, all of that stuff. But those kind of those two main things. Caroline, you know I love it when a guest drops a phrase like patriarchal medicine. (laughs) But what Allison is referring to here is this longstanding assumption in the medical community that the standard of a healthy body is a male body. Like, just think about what drives that pain train we talked about at the top of the episode. For years, medical research just excluded women outright or neglected to include many of us in studies alongside men, in large part because menstruating bodies were just considered too unreliable and unstable to conduct any rigorous scientific research on. So, Today, that's why we know way more about how diseases and treatments act in men's bodies versus women's. Well, for an example of what happens when we do pay closer attention to girls and women's bodies and actually research them, in recent years, we've actually seen the gender gaps in autism and ADHD diagnoses narrow. 
Initially, boys were overwhelmingly diagnosed. But recently, there's a growing awareness that the conditions often present differently in girls. And those kinds of knowledge gaps about how our bodies work are often what keep those revolving doors of unhelpful doctors spinning. Still, though, Allison has compassion for the work physicians are doing. I mean, after all, Caroline, the human body, I guess, is pretty complicated. And there's so many things that could cause any kind of illness, and there's often many factors at play. But I think that at the same time, when we go into the doctor's office, we really want them to just give us a quick fix. We want them to tell us the one thing that is causing the problem, and we want a quick fix for the most part, right? Like, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, like, that's what we want. And again, like, I think that just as complex as our bodies are, the solutions are often really complex, too. Despite all of Allison's work and research, going to the doctor can still be daunting. You know, I I wish I could say that ever since that experience, I just, like, know how to advocate for myself in the doctor's office. And after making this series, I know exactly what to say and how to get what I want. But that's that would be a lie because, you know, I was just at the doctor's office a month or so ago, and I had an issue that I wanted to talk about, and I had— um, seen an acupuncturist and the acupuncturist had some ideas and I kind of tried to bring that to the doctor and she, you know, she kind of shut me down. And next thing you know, I'm sitting there crying. Like, <laughs> you know, so it's it's a hard thing to do. But I think that the experience with Dr. Goldstein and subsequent conversations with doctors who really take this very seriously, kind of like this um, relationship between patient and doctor, you know, there is another way. Like, there are really fantastic doctors who will listen to you. And we wanted to hear from one of those fantastic doctors to get our take on all this. Do patients have overblown expectations? Or are doctors just not listening? And what can we do about it? Up next, we're talking to a gynecologist who helps us spot the gaslighting symptoms and offers concrete advice for treating it. We don't want no scrubs and scrubs. Stick around. I have friends that are like, I don't want my doctor to be my friend. You know, I don't want to run into them at Dylan's and say hi, but then they shouldn't see me because that's just kind of my personality. This is Dr. Melissa Haig an OBGYN in Wichita, Kansas, who specializes in issues of painful sex, anorgasmia, and libido, a.k.a. Gaslighting Central. And she told us that many, many of her patients have seen 10 or maybe 15 other doctors by the time they end up in a room with her. And Dr. Haig is a busy physician, but she made time to talk with us over Skype because this issue matters to her. She prides herself on listening to patients, asking lots of questions, and working with them to find the answers. What I wasn't expecting, though, Caroline, when I talked to Dr. Haig, was how those skills really weren't emphasized in her medical training. Dr. Haig says that in her gynecology program, it was babies, babies, and more babies. I discovered fairly early in my practice that I knew nothing about sex, and I, you, I think you graduate as a resident thinking, I, I pretty much know stuff. And then you start your practice. And I quickly discovered how little I knew. And women were coming in and 
Um, I think I'm pretty easy to talk to. So they would tell me, you know, I'm, I'm having pain with sex or I don't really like sex or I can't have an orgasm. And I would think, man, that that's all really too bad. I wish there was a doctor to help you. And after hearing enough of that and really just seeing the pain in my patient's face when they quickly realized I had no idea how to help them um, and really nowhere to even send them, I decided I, I have got to figure this out. And so that's when I sought out the education. So how how did you go about kind of seeking that education? Well, I did what every American woman does when she doesn't know something, and I Googled it. See, even doctors Google. We have come full Google. Dr. Haig found some organizations that give doctors extra education and training, and it took her three years on top of her degree and life as a working mom. But now she's a fellow at the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Not too shabby, Dr. Haig. Well, when you hang out your shingle and say, no, I'm really going to address sexual problems, I just felt like I needed a whole lot more experience examining women and knowing kind of some of the weirder things that can cause pain and also really coming out of my own um, shell and being willing to say to someone in your office, so exactly what sexual position causes you pain? Because it will help me figure out what's wrong with you. And so for to be a, you know, kind of a conservative little Kansas girl saying to women, uh, tell me exactly where in your vagina you're feeling pain. It was weird at first. I mean, it's not like normal everyday conversation. I mean, it is now, but it wasn't then. So just really feeling confident and asking women the detailed questions as they're turning red and getting really anxious and sweating. And I'm nervous too, but realizing that, you know, my patients were actually my best teachers. So would you describe then a healthy doctor-patient relationship as a collaborative one? Absolutely. I can only help a woman as much as she wants to be helped. And really, especially in the area of sexual medicine, it's such an intimate part of a woman's life. It takes a huge amount of um, trust on their part for them to come to me. And I hear all the time in my office, they'll say, well, it's taken me a long time to get the guts up to talk to you. <laughs> and I just think, well, I think I'm pretty easy to talk to. And I hear about sex problems all day. So you're in the right place. So I'm curious, is there a kind of a most common complaint that you hear from women about their relationships with doctors? I think a, a common theme, um, unfortunately, is humans, we really want to think that we know, I mean, especially as physicians, we want to think that we know what's wrong with a patient. And sometimes physicians have a tendency to, if we don't know what's wrong with a patient, kind of make the patient feel like there must be nothing wrong with them. You know, if I can't figure out what's wrong with you, there must be nothing wrong with you. So what I'm hearing then is that maybe it's tough for doctors to say, you know, I don't know, but here's a specialist who might. Absolutely. I have learned a lot from my patients over the years who have been open with me and said, you know, that advice you gave me last year, well, that really didn't help. <laughs> so it's really hard as a physician to leave all of your own baggage at the door and just come in and be there for your patient. Are medical schools doing much to prepare uh, residents for leaving their baggage at the door, as you put it? No, 
<laughs> at least in my limited experience. So I, that's really unfair. There, the problem with medical school is you have to learn a whole lot of stuff in four years. So, I mean, there are lectures on how to help a patient through the dying process and how to help a new parent learn how to parent. And I mean, they definitely try to address all of these individual issues, but um, I think some of it you have to learn to seek out for yourself as well. And, and that's why I speak to physicians every chance I get, because I, it's my goal to educate as many physicians as I can. And I love to see patients, but man, if I can teach one doctor how to care for patients, then sometimes I can touch hundreds or even thousands of women. Dr. Haig does speak to lots of physicians and physicians in training, and she teaches students on OBGYN rotation at her hospital and emphasizes to them that they can choose what sort of doctor they want to be. And there are lots of efforts nationwide to educate doctors on things like inclusive language. But institutionally, medicine has a sexism problem. Totally. And Dr. Haig says she sees its effects every day treating women. I mean, I tell my patients all the time, if you feel like your options are limited. It's because women have not been important for very long. So we're catching up. Um, and you certainly see way more studies for women's health now than in any other time in history. Um, but some of the things that are tough to study for women, frankly, are uh, like pregnancy. You're not going to get 100 women to sign up for a trial where you give them a drug and see what happens to their unborn child. So I hope to see more and more acceptance in the medical community that not everything we learn is going to be from a randomized controlled trial. I've actually probably learned more from reading novels, frankly, on how to relate to people and how to care for women. But y'all, if there is one thing we want you to walk away from this episode with, it's that you are not alone. Dr. Haig shared some great advice for how to get the most out of our interactions with doctors and what to do if you start feeling gaslit. So, number one, Figure out what you're really there for. Dr. Haig says that, yes, she wants to help you, and we can help ourselves. It's amazing to me when people are just dissatisfied in life in general, how they want me to somehow magically fix that. I mean, that's why, like in an annual exam, the first thing I say is, do you like your partner? Because I don't have a pill to fix that. Um, and then the other thing I think sometimes we do to ourselves is, uh, we are not concrete and definitive about our needs when we see a medical provider. I think sometimes we're just too vague. Once you know what you're specifically seeking help for, it's time for number two. Make a list. So let's say your complaint is pain with sex. Really think about that. Okay, well, when does it hurt? Okay, well, maybe it hurts just on initial penetration. Okay, you write that down. And what does it feel like? what feels like this, what makes it better and what makes it worse. And that way you go in, you know, okay, I know these are the kind of questions they're going to ask me. I'm just going to be prepared. And sometimes I think preparing for that conversation and really think about how you feel will really help you across to the physician as I know, really, I, I need you to take me seriously and I need you to help me through this. All right. So we got our list. Now, number three, don't be afraid to speak up with your doctor especially if you end up thinking they're not the best person to help you. It's okay to say that to a doctor and to say, you know, I have a problem with X. Do you feel like you can address that for me? And if you can't, 
that's totally fine. If you could just help me find the right person. Um, and I think when you ask in that way, it's non-threatening and it really gives a physician the opportunity to say, you know, actually, I don't know anything about that. Um, I mean, for instance, I have done a lot of work in the area of pain and climax. I really don't have any experience in transgender health. I, it's just not something I've had time to train in and I don't like to dabble in things. So when I've had patients say to me, you know, I'm trying to transition, or, can you help me with that? I have not ever felt like a patient was angry with me when I said, no, I really don't do that medicine, but let me help find a provider. So I think if you just, just ask them if they're comfortable helping you or if they know how to help you, that really puts people off the defensive. If you say it in a way that just isn't assuming you can fix all my problems. Dr. Haig gave us some really great resources to help you find reliable health information and amazing doctors. And you can head over to unladylike.co to find those resources. So we've, we've been talking a lot about shortcomings in medicine. But before we wrap up, what's some good news? Uh, are there things that as you know, women, we should be pumped about? Well, I think, I mean, just the fact that we're having this conversation is evidence that we in medicine see the importance of women's health research, and we're really seeing women step up as leaders in our field and say, you know, it's time. It's time for us to take the lead and to show our patients by example that women are important and that we want to take good care of them. You know what, Kristen? Dr. Haig is right. This conversation feels like evidence that the tide for women's health is turning. Totally. It almost feels, Caroline, like we're back in Boston in 1969 wearing our flared jeans and our high waists and our fair faucet hairdos saying, hey, old patriarchy, we're getting to know our bodies for the first time. You hear us? <laughs> Women really are doctoring for themselves. That's right. And there are lots of ways to join in on the conversation. One really great one? Join Allison's Facebook group. She created it as a space where people can go and talk about this stuff after they're inspired by her podcast. And she's thrilled with the community that's emerged. Sounds like something Unladies would be very much into. It's been so incredible seeing, you know, I haven't done anything in the Facebook group, just kind of like, <laughs> we just kind of made it and people have come and are having these conversations. And it's so cool to see this happening um, because I think that what I witnessed on a very micro scale was the way in which just like sharing my own story inspired this like eruption of conversation. I think we're seeing that in the Facebook group and it like it's happening all over the place. And that is what's really cool to me about this moment right now is that yes, we have historically not been believed. We've historically been made to feel crazy for, you know, kind of saying what's wrong with us. But I think that, like, we're mounting a pretty strong response. So what's your response? What medical mysteries and gaslighting have you had to put up with? Or have you found a great way to work with your medical provider? Let us know. Email us at hello at unladylike.co or hit us up on all the socials at Unladylike Media. You'll be able to find links to our sources and to Allison's amazing podcast bodies at our site, unladylike.co. And while you're there, if you're looking to learn more about your body and yourself, you can pick up our book. It's Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space. And also, 
why not pick up some Unladylike merch while you're at it? I mean, come on, y'all. We have shiny middle finger pins. So that means next time you go to the doctor's office, you're already flicking off the medical <laughs> patriarchy. And if you haven't already, y'all are definitely going to want to sign up for Stitcher Premium this week so you can access our amazing new bonus episode. We're talking to comedian and Fake the Nation host Nagin Farsad about Halloween, or more specifically, Slutoween. We came up with the ultimate 2018 Halloween costume idea, y'all. So go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the code unladylike for one month of free listening today. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rattelet. Special thanks to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists for helping us find Dr. Haig. I mean, frankly, I think sometimes the, the best foreplay ever is paper plates because... We seem to have a really hard time wanting sex when we have dirty dishes. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. And next week, we're celebrating our favorite holiday, Unladylike Style. What really motivates me to plan my funeral is like, you know what? I can smash the patriarchy with my corpse. Make sure you subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Can I just share with you the reason that I am familiar with how different women's heart attack symptoms are than than men's is because of a Rosie O'Donnell stand-up special. (laughs) 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 Women telling other women. Stitcher.